Relations between Russia and North Korea are growing closer. Pyongyang has been publicly supportive of Russia's war in Ukraine and is reported to have supplied Moscow with millions of artillery shells. Kim Jong-un met with Vladimir Putin at Vostochny Cosmodrome and discussed deepening their military relationship and providing Russia with additional military supplies. These deepening ties also raise a series of questions related to geostrategic competition in Northeast Asia, the war in Ukraine, the future of UN sanctions, and the prospects for North Korean denuclearization. On October 5, 2023, KEI hosted a discussion of these and other pressing questions about North Korea's deepening ties with Russia. To those watching in the United States and good evening to those watching in Korea. I'm Choi Sangaron, Senior Director and Fellow here at the Korea Economic Institute. One of the consequences of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is that it is drawing both Russia and North Korea closer together. For a while now, there have been reports that North Korea has been providing weapons to Russia, specifically to the Wagner Group. Um, and we also know that recently Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un met for summit meeting. While there are no formal agreements reached at this meeting, there is an assumption that Russia will be receiving weapons from North Korea in exchange for either aid or potentially other weapons technology. Uh, this morning, there was breaking news that North Korea has begun transferring arms to Russia, according to one U.S. official. So we're starting to see this partnership deepen and develop in real time. This raises a host of questions that we're going to dig into deeper today. Uh, we pulled together a range of expertise, um, and I'm very excited with what we have here today in terms of talent to talk about this issue. Um, here in the room with me today, we have uh, Han Byul Sun, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Military Strategy at Korea National Defense University. Also in the room with me today is my colleague, Dr. Clint Work, who is the uh, Fellow and Director of Academic Affairs here at KEI. Joining us virtually, uh, we have Rachel Min-Young Lee, who is the Regional Issues Manager and Senior Analyst for the Open Nuclear, Net Open Nuclear Network. Rachel was previously a North Korea open source excuse me, collection expert and analyst for the U.S. government from 2000 to 2019. We are also joined by Anton Soklin, um, who is a data correspondent at NK News. He's previously worked for Reuters and TASS and has been covering this issue for NK News. So, Rachel, I want to start with you. Um, what, from your perspective, is really driving Russia and North Korea together? It's, uh, yes. So I think um, we can say that um, the aligned interests of the two countries um, is really what um, led to the summit uh, between Kim and Putin. Um, as they say, friends in need are friends indeed. Uh, I think what the two countries had in common um, was politically uh, giving off the message that um, a U.S. and West-led international order can be neutralized, and if not neutralized, at least checked. Um, and I think one example of, of that is um, the message um, given about international sanctions, um, that they can be neutralized. Uh, I think for North Korea, obviously, the short-term gains are grain, oil, um, I'm sure, of course, that Kim Jong-un is looking to getting military technology transfers from Moscow. I think for the long term, um, and I think this is probably more interesting, is that in light of Pyongyang's fundamentally 
changed U.S. policy, China and Russia have become uh, bigger, um, greater in strategic value for North Korea. Um, so I think this is more of a longer term um, strategic calculation that Kim Jong-un had in mind when he went to uh, the Russian Far East. And I think right now what we're seeing is that North Korea is hedging its bets and um, you know trying to maybe uh, de-risk from China. And I think that's what we're seeing um, with Russia. And again, um, Kim's uh, visit to, um, to Russia. So Anton, you've been covering this closely. Um, one of the things that struck me, and I do want to later on get into sanctions, you know, Rachel mentioned grain. Uh, about a week or so ago, uh, North Korean officials said we've had a great harvest, sort of suggesting that they don't need grain. Um, do you see um, basically grain, military technology also driving this, or do you see other reasons beyond some of the ones that um, Rachel's mentioned that's really kind of driving the two countries together? Well, um, thank you for your question. Uh, it is actually very interesting to observe how the situation is panning out. And the thing is, yes, indeed, um, of course, grains, food, oil, energy resources, it's a very important element and a very important factor for North Korea. It's a, basically the regime hinges on the survival, right? It needs to feed its people. But at the same time, as Rachel Right, uh, rightly pointed out, of course, the regime would be also interested in technology transfers. And as we've seen with this uh, summit, um, it was devoted to the satellite technology, it was de devoted to um, space exploration. And uh, that would be also another reason why uh, Kim, what Kim would be willing to get out of Moscow, um, speaking of course like satellite technology, launching rockets, and potentially maybe perfecting its uh, nuclear uh, program, and so on. So, Clint, I want to kind of bring you into this discussion too a bit here. From a practical standpoint, and from a strategic standpoint, it seems as though. Russia needs North Korea. They've been getting drones from Iran. Uh, so, and there's been reports that some missiles might be coming from Iran. Uh, but when we kind of look at this in terms of just purely strategic value, um, you know, is this really a partnership driven by convenience that, you know, in essence, North Korea has what Russia needs. Russia needs it. It needs it now. It doesn't really have options. You know, how much of that is really at play here? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's right. And Rachel put it well, a friend in need is a friend indeed. And I think there are multiple calculations, short and, and near and also long-term for Russia. I think buying, buying time and space, uh, particularly over the next year, to drag this war on and hopefully, uh, from Putin's perspective, uh, you know, a, a Trump candidacy, assuming that is... Uh, assuming Trump is the candidate for the Republican Party, which I think is a rather safe assumption. Um, and if he can be elected, that will um, uh, notably shift the U.S. position on Ukraine. Um, so if if Putin in that relatively short 14-month window can garner uh, the resources he needs to at least uh, you know, drag the war on to, to potentially uh, get to a more advantageous political, geopolitical environment, um, I think that is the immediate calculation. Uh, but I do think it also fits into the larger, bigger picture, which we'll get into, I think, um, of you know, 
Hardening geopolitical lines and tightening relations, though very complex, between China, Russia, and North Korea. Uh, and this is part of, uh, again, as Rachel said, uh, if not rolling back, that may not be the expression she used, checking uh, or, or countering um, a larger uh, U.S.-led coalition. I, I want to kind of underscore um, you know, your point about this is about buying time. Um, we've seen a lot of, I think, in the press commentary that, well, North Korea really can't change the tide of the war. And I think that's a questionable assumption because at the end of the day, um, one of the things that um, you'll see in the press is, you know, one, I think we have a very poor understanding of what North Korea actually can provide Russia. So I think we need to start from that premise. There's mm -hmm. lots of reporting that, you know, they can provide millions of artillery shells a year. Um, if you look at the production capacity, both in the United States and in Europe, we're talking of tens of thousands a month, you know, so you're getting to like maybe a few hundred thousand a year. Quality is probably going to be a lot worse on the North Korean side, especially since reporting suggests that, you know, North Korea is not willing to give its newer artillery. It's more stockpile uh, type equipment. Uh, but I think this is kind of a key when you think of this from a strategic standpoint, because, you know, we've seen here in the United States with the um, continuing resolution to keep the government open. Mm -hmm. Ukraine funding was stripped out. Um, there's a pushback in the Republican Party. There's clearly the potential due to politics of the United States to take and really shift U.S. support, which could then shift the war. So, I mean, I think your point about this isn't necessarily about whether North Korea can win the war for Putin is important. It's about can North Korea buy him enough time to maybe get a Trump presidency, which then radically changes potentially the strategic landscape? Yeah, and, and maybe not just to drag it on, but potentially gain advantages. I mean, I, it was reported today that the U.S., I think DOD confirmed it that they transferred some Iranian ammunition that they had that they had seized to the Ukrainians. And, you know, it's understandable that they did that, but continuing resolution, potential, still potential government shutdown, it's possible that the supplies that we've been providing to Ukraine, even if on a, on a marginal level, will start to not dry up, but, but lessen. And, and if, if Putin can gain from what he gets from North Korea, they might even make advances on the battlefield um, again. And if Trump is elected, that much more advantageous position. So I want to pick up the thread you laid down and, and turn to um, Hanbyol. Um, we've been mentioning a range of different possibilities of what could be provided both ways. What do you think could realistically be provided by the North Koreans to the Russians and, and vice versa? Yeah. Actually, you know, this view, does you guys remember the day of previous meeting in 2019, shortly after the failure of the Hanoi summit, it seems to be marked by very this complex calculation. But still, you know, the, the yeah, they are they're using, they exploit the, the kind of the chasm of the international order, the change of the international order. Now, the absolute Ukraine war just makes them closer together. But still, I think yeah, yeah. The main the uh, the driving force is that uh, that a uh, desperate Russia hand reached out its hand to the North Korea, and then the similarly a uh, desperate North Korea they accepted it. But uh, however, I think there's a two countries have different perspectives. The Russia appears focused on the short-term deals, as the Rachel and Anton said, and for example, artillery shells. But this while North Korea seems to prioritize long-term cooperation, for example, nuclear and missile technologies. So uh, 
So I, I mean, with you, this Clint, just we have to focus on the long-term and strategic goals of the, the both countries. So, yeah, I think that's, um, yeah, I'm guessing what was exchanged, but we saw the news media from t today, t in this morning. Um, yeah, reporters suggest that North Korea acquired the surveillance, I mean, more than, more than the ammunition, the, uh, North Korea's surveillance assets, advanced fighter craft, and the air defense system from Russia, while mm -hmm. Russia obtained the ammunition shells and rockets from North Korea. So can I just follow up with you for a second? Because, um, you know, we saw Kim Jong-un in Russia. He, you know, tour, he got a tour of an advanced fighter jet um, in Russia. And when we think about what... North Korea may actually want. It seems to me that there are certain things that would be of more utility to them than others. You know, an advanced fighter jet may look fancy, but at the end of the day, it's probably not in any conflict of great utility. So maybe what do you think might be some of the things that Kim Jong-un really wants from Russia in terms of technology? Yes, as you know that this, um, North Korea already have the, the development of their five-year plan, the, the defense defense development plan, is, it is not like that from just some the very short-term, small, the, just some satellite or the other things technology. It is really related on the, their ICBM, the satellite, the space program like that. So I already said that is that you focus on Kim Jong Un. Focus on the on the long term, um, the cooperation in, in example, the nuclear and missile related technologies. Thank you. So, I think when we look at it that way, you know, one of the things that's interesting, and I don't remember what year it was, but there's been a long standing offer from Putin to put North Korean satellites into orbit. So, I mean, this is something that I think you know was an easy door for them to push on. Um, and North Korea clearly has shown a greater interest in developing satellite technology, you know, here in the last, you know, couple, well, even just the last year when they had their failed launch. So, I mean, it seems like there is sort of a marriage you could have here in terms of cooperation. And they've, I mean, they've, North Korea is on record, they've committed to to attempt a third launch this this month. Yeah. Um, I, I do, because you're not in the room we don't want to. We don't want to forget you. Maybe just turn to Rachel or Anton if you want to, you know, add add anything to the discussion we've been having. Um, I actually have a question, um, if I may, and maybe this is a good one for Anton. Um, I think there has been some talk about um, Najin, mm. right, the Rajan area um, and the port. Um, Russia possibly taking an interest in revitalizing the Rajin um, project um, and possibly even using the port uh, for its Pacific fleet ships. So do you think that's a, that's a possibility or that's even um, like a likely scenario in your opinion? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, before I answer actually that question, I wanted to address a different point. Um, whenever we talk about North Korea, we also should not like forget the point that uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un has this penchant for drama and theatrical performances, right? And he, as any other politician, enjoys shows. So one, one thing that he actually might want is same as in the West, same as everywhere, it's uh, publicity and uh, joining Putin 
doesn't matter that Putin is now considered an international sort of like dictator pariah. It's still an international leader. And Kim has been confined to his probably or bunker or palace, whatever you call it, for years now, right? So, and, and publicity never hurts. So th that would be my just little point. And now I will get to the regime board. Um, indeed, Russian officials mentioned that um, they thoroughly discussed this possibility of reviving, reviving the project where Jin Rashan, uh, a logistical project. And um, uh, it's, it, it sounds like a real possibility that they might start working on it. Um, there, is, there are talks about actually building a car bridge over the Tumangan River. And um, it, it, it indeed can happen. There were several messages from Russian officials, regional officials, saying that they would like to also establish like a hub or um, even jointly produce certain goods with China and North Korea. It's all a possibility, of course. However, you also mentioned uh, this point about uh, the Russian Pacific fleet. Well, I stare at this particular port pretty much daily. Uh, we are using satellite imagery. And I can tell you that there is like three piers, right? Uh, they, they do not have the capacity at this moment to host like a big armada of naval ships ships. Several uh, ships, uh, several vessels definitely could join several warships, could be burst to them. But at this point, talking about like um, hosting, housing, huge armada would be probably an overstatement. No, not right now. But would Russia have the wherewithal or even the political will then to invest money into In renovating uh, absolutely. I, I do think it is possible. It, it is possible. It actually raises a whole avenue of questions, right, about uh, what kind of labor force would be involved in this project. Would they be? Would there be any joint projects across the river? Uh, would there be uh, any sanctions? But it, it's an open question, but I do consider it's a, possi it's a possibility. And that's true. So, all right. I see you have a comment. Uh, so you go, and then I'll ask Anton my follow-up. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, okay. so actually, this, uh, regarding to the, that the question from the Rachel, is you know the the reflect the closer relations between the two countries has been constantly uh, strengthened since two thousand twenty two. The being utilized as a liberal for a new game. I mean, it is not only the economic sector, it, but also the military sector. I, I mean, I can call it just some military economy nexus, like that Edward Nazin Hassan project. You know, there's some information suggesting gradual restoration at the cooperation in trade and economy sector that with North Korea expanding its food imports from Russia, the full food in 2022. The substantial changes are also being observed the tourism related uh, cooperation, labor force dispatch, and project development. I, I, yeah, what I mean is that the Nazin Hassan project, it is, uh, you know, the I, I call it just some the military nexus. Uh, what uh, the, the reason why that what I call this nexus? It um, the China China and Russia can reach the to Pacific using the North Korean naval bases. So I think this we have to uh, to concentrate the both of them military and the economic sectors. So Anton, I just wanted to go back real quick to you because you mentioned Kim Jong Un like spectacle, and one of the things I'm wondering is. You also pointed out that they can't berth a lot of naval ships uh, in Rajon. Um, so the question is, is 
would they want to mirror U.S. South Korea signaling and potentially have a Russian nuclear sub come to port? Mm. Is that something that you see as being like on the table, or is that perhaps a step too far? I think it's a bit too far to talk about this sort of cooperation at the moment. Honestly, I think if there is gonna, if there is any cooperation to be, that then it would probably be something very small at first. Uh, if the if, if let's say um, sending certain certain observers to certain uh, military maneuvers that Russia probably the Russian Pacific fleet in Vladivostok uh, would perform um it could it could start with that um and even that probably would take time uh considering how actually well the pace of this develop because we are we are not sure whether there is any military cooperation uh happening right now at the moment right so probably it would start small and speaking of like deploying nuclear assets well i think it's it is possible but it's not really likely in the near future i think I just, I just want to jump in real quick like to the point on theater i, I so i totally agree K, kg loves theater but in some ways um and there are benefits garnered just from the perceptions and concerns this raises right just 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 the meeting itself which is it, it, remarkable, the itinerary, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Anton, but it's, it's Kim, Jong, Kim Jong-un's longest foreign uh, foray in, in his entire tenure. Um, but in some ways, it's not really fantastical theater. It, it mirrors very much, and maybe you were alluding to this, Anton, how the alliance or Troy, how the alliance itself has been meeting and signaling uh, when officials meet together. I'm not, I'm not the first person to mention this, but you know, South Korea's vice minister of defense coming to Andrews Air Force Base, seeing uh, the, the different capabilities that the U.S. has, being photoed alongside the planes. It's a very similar type of signaling. Um, so it's not so much theatrical, as, uh, although there are theatrical elements to it, as sort of this is sort of we, we can do the same thing as well. And it's sort of this sort of standard uh, imagery. And, uh, you know, the other, the other piece of it is, uh, of course, this raises great concern and U.S., South Korea, Japan governments are calculating the full range of possibilities here and having to spend time and energy and bandwidth on this, calculating what the response might be in any of these cases. Um, but at a certain point, the rubber, ha- the rubber has to meet the road, right? And when we look at uh, whether it's the, the potential port development or even North, North Korean artillery to Russia, these things can't be hidden. We, this will show up on the battlefield. We will see it, right? If, especially if it's in any appreciable number. So, uh, Time will tell with that, which I hate to say, um, but but I think you know just that 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 balance between just the the benefits and costs uh, of perception uh, versus you know actual concrete actions later. Rachel, uh, do you have anything you want to add to this? It looks like you uh, might. Um. No, um, just just going back to the um, theatrical elements <laughs> of um, Kim Jong Un's visit, I, I I did want to mention one thing, and um, I think there were some observations about how this summit may not have yielded any concrete results or agreements, even between Kim and. Mm-hmm. Putin because there was no joint statement or joint declaration. I think maybe from a diplomatic uh, protocol point of view, that may be important. 
But from my point of view, just the fact that Kim Jong-un chose to visit Russia, chose Russia as the first, as his first overseas travel destination since uh, they reopened borders um, for the first time in more than three years. Um, I think just the nature of the visit, um, the place, his itinerary, um, the um, people that he went with, um, the people that he met with, um, just, um, I think all of that shows that maybe in this particular case, um, the lack of a joint statement or declaration doesn't really matter. Um, I, I think it was really the symbolic nature um, of the visit, um, aside from everything else that I'm sure um, came up during the um, in the course of the meetings. I was particularly struck by one readout from North Korean media, um, and I think this was Kim Jong Un's last meeting with Shoigu, where, um, according to state media, um, North Korean state media. Kim Jong-un had, um, he discussed practical issues and quote unquote practical issues um, with Shoigu. And I thought that was very interesting because Kim Jong-un does not discuss practical issues mm. uh, with somebody who's not at his level. Um, he discusses practical issues with Xi Jinping. That's come up before, but the fact that he discussed practical issues with Shoigu um, was in a way alarming to me. Um, you know, you, you wonder what level of issues, um, came up, um, because practical issues to me kind of sounds like, um, they discussed concrete, maybe very specific issues. It's possible that, uh, Kim Jong-un raised some issues that, uh, he wasn't able to, uh, raise with Putin, um, during the summit talks. And maybe he, um, it was like a follow-up, um, thing that he did with Shoigu, but I thought that was very interesting. And um, I think we'll have to see, um, you know, from Lavrov's visit and any follow-on measures in the weeks and months to come so um, in terms of what those issues might be. So Rachel, just to maybe pull on this thread very briefly a little bit more, does the absence of a joint statement have anything to indicate whether there's actually an absence of agreement? It seems to me that even if Putin and Kim reach an agreement, they might not say, you know, we've agreed to provide publicly X number of artillery to Russia in exchange for Y, you know, be it either, you know, food, fuel, or military equipment. So, I mean, can we really say that the absence of a statement means they didn't actually reach an agreement? I think in this particular case, um, a lot of the issues that they discussed were probably sensitive. I think we have many reasons to believe that um, the issues they discussed, many, most of the issues, if not all of the issues, were sensitive. And for that reason, maybe there was an agreement between the two parties to not um, issue a joint statement or agreement um, for this particular summit. So, Abil. Yes, I'm, I'm with you, Rachel. So it was a very symbolic. But I would like to add one, just one thing in military aspect. See, I, agree, I agree to many experts that North Korea are likely to receive any core technology for advanced weapons. Is it unlikely? Unlikely. Yeah, unlikely in this summit. But however, I'm worrying about, I'm worrying about that the most dangerous scenarios, the transfer of the nuclear and missile-related technology, equipment, and components to North Korea. Yeah, is a significant concern. Um, yeah, the likelihood of Russia providing core nuclear technology is very low, but there is a clear potential mm -hmm. for some technology transfer because North Korea is really eager to the, receive the, that kind of the 
technology. North Korea has identified advanced weapons, ICBM, nuclear submarine, and SLBM as a key priority in, in its five-year plan. And Russia technology is crucial. Uh, it is noteworthy that the Lee Byung-chul, yeah, he is a deputy director of the Central Military Commission, and Cho Myung, Cho Chun-yong, the head of the Party Defense Industries Department, were part of the delegation. And on the other hand, in the, the conventional technology are also significant concern. Russia has a wide range of nuclear military technology it could provide to North Korea, given that North Korea is very the outdated neighbor and air yeah. force. Yeah. So any technology would be considered valuable for the North Korea. Yeah, that's right. And especially in the context where the, the U.S.-South Korea alliances um, of non-strategic conventional assets are steadily improving and, and some emerging sort of long-range precision things yeah. are coming online. It's, it's diminishing um, the deterrent value of North Korea's own, uh, you know, own nuclear weapons and missiles, right? So, um, so let's kind of maybe move more in this direction. You know, what really are the implications for you know, South Korean security, just specifically U.S.-Korea alliance, maybe more broadly, and then security within the region. And we can even look at this from the perspective of you know, what does this mean for you know, Russia, North Korea's own strategic perspective and security. Um, you know, maybe, Hanvil, why don't you kind of start off maybe giving us a little bit of your thoughts on what this directly means for South Korea? Yeah, actually, the, the North Korea seems to maximize its value. The, amid the U.S.-China and amid the U.S.-Russia competition. So strengthening ties with Russia at the partially alleviated North Korea's po political isolation, I mean, enhanced the Kim Jong-un Kim Jong regime's legitimacy and um, the encourage to pursue missile and satellite development. So I'm concerned that the North Korea might lever leverage Russia to for its provocative actions from now on. So what I want to say is that this summit, the probable uh, the deals matters to Korean Peninsula a lot more than Ukraine. So um, especially in the long-term competition between two Koreas. So Anton, do you have any thoughts on what this maybe means for the U.S.-Korea alliance? Well, before actually uh, answering that, I, I wanted to circle back to the point about um, signals, what kind of signals uh, Russia and North Korea uh, have been sending recently and the absence of a joint statement. Um, in my opinion, um, I, I agree that definitely this um, the entourage that that they staged the, the how how the process of the, the itinerary how everything was organized it literally mirrored what we see often in the West and in South Korea pertaining to the U.S. Uh, relations with the U.S. Um, and however, I also see um, this um, collaboration as a clear message in a sort of a wider context, considering the wider global implications in including of course Ukraine first of all because um, we have this issue uh, pretty much pending right now whether South Korea is going to um, provide lethal uh, weaponry to North to, to Ukraine and it's a real issue for for Putin, who would not want uh, this sort of collaboration uh, to happen and staging these high-level talks um, 
sort of putting the world at all and how it was organized, what sort of issues, practical issues and sensitive topics that Rachel mentioned were brought up there. All of this um, solidifies Putin's position and the clear message that we do not want any interference on the other, on the West, on the Russia's West, on Russia's Western Front, and uh, it sort of signals. Uh, first of all, of course, it, it it's a signal for Seoul and Washington to sort of scale down, scale back their their pressure on South Korea. And um, speaking of um, the absence of a joint statement, it is also very interesting, and I, I, I'm glad that it was brought up because. Um, Indeed, uh, it, 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 it struck many observers as quite interesting, but at the same time, uh, the absence of any open publicly uh, shared uh, statement means that probably um, the two sides do not actually owe anything to each other. So it's a, co a cooperation uh, that you can enjoy while it lasts. So we, we show these theatrical performances, we send clear signals to our counterparts, but at the same time, we do not actually owe anything to each other. Yeah. And we, we will see how the relationship is going to pan out in the future. So, uh, and that's the point that I actually wanted to kind of bring back to our little discussion. Yeah, okay. just, yeah, yeah, I think that the, the absence of a joint statement is intentional, I think, for multiple reasons, right? right. One, why, why would they, especially when a lot of this cooperation would entail a direct violation of sanctions, which we'll get into in a second, um, that, why would they announce that if they're doing that? Uh, and two, it, it, not, not saying that all issues are, you know, as Putin said, are, are under negotiation, it leaves all of us guessing, like, like we are in, you know, in educated ways in, in today's program, right? So it leaves so much to doubt. Um, just, just to piggyback quickly on what Anton said about uh, Russia's motivation to pressure South Korea not to, uh, you know, supply sort of outright supply um, munitions to Kiev. But this is also could be read as, as as sort of pressure and punishment for what it's already done. It's an open secret that South Korea has provided large amounts of artillery to the U.S. So these are fungible things. You, you you build up one stock and another stock finds its way to Ukraine with Poland as well. Um, so people can wring their hands that Seoul hasn't been, uh, you know, vocal uh, and said they'll provide direct lethal aid, but they are indirectly doing so in in, in relatively large amounts. So um, I, I think both can be true, right? Punishment for what's already been provided and pressure to, to not provide more. And there's a delicate balance here in this, which is that, you know, you're right. It sends a signal to the U.S. and South Korea that you might want to hold back on this because we could do more. But if intelligence suggests that the Russians did transfer sensitive military technology, that could change the script and it could incentivize South Korea to yeah. take and yeah, exactly. provide weapons. So, you know, Russia has to do a delicate balance in how they handle this because too far and you actually incentivize the thing that you were trying to stop because then South Korea has an incentive to undermine Russian security. And, and in some ways, not to belabor this point, North Korea would could maybe want South Korea to start doing that. One, maybe drawing down some of their own stocks, even though they can produce, they've got the, the, the defense industry to produce more. Um, but it's only going to lead to you know further Russian displeasure and maybe further cooperation with Russia, which would be to, to North Korea's advantage, right? So that might be something that Russia wouldn't want to have happen. But I could see KJU in some ways wanting that to happen. Uh, hey, Rachel, I want to bring your thoughts in on this. 
Yeah, um, sorry. I just wanted to um, add one more thing about the lack of a joint statement this time. Um, we should keep in mind that Putin has yet to visit North Korea, reciprocate um, the visit. Um, and it sounds like he is going to go. It's just a matter of time. So it could be that we might see something, a joint statement, yeah. communique, declaration at the end of that visit. Um, and also, um, I do have to say, uh, when Putin went to Pyongyang in, was it 2000, 2001? 2000. Um, and in 2011, when Kim Jong-un went to Russia, um, I there were, I think each time there was a declaration. So Pyongyang declaration, a Moscow declaration. And um, I don't, those two declarations didn't really do much. Um, you know, they, um, I think the two um, countries relationship remained uh, mercantile, transactional, which I think are the two common words that um, are associated with uh, DPRK-Russia relations. Um, they pretty much remain transactional despite the two declarations, so. Yeah, and I mean, there's even a question if you think about this long term and, you know, one of the reasons why you never saw trade, you know, during the post-war war period take off between Russia and North Korea wasn't just that, you know, Russia was finally demanding payment and everything, which you know, was part of it, but just that outside of military technology and perhaps food, there's limited things that the two could trade with each other. And, you know, Russia already has a lot of energy resources. So importing coal from North Korea seems somewhat redundant. So there's, you know, obvious constraints in terms of what, you know, they could actually economically do. So, so yeah, uh, no, good. Yeah, I alluded to before um, the sanctions piece, right? Mm -hmm. So, what I, you know, I want to direct it first right back to you, Troy, but I know Rachel and Anton and Hamil as well, feel free to, to respond. But what are the implications for sanctions? Yeah. And I mean, Rachel teed this up, you know, about this idea of nullification of sanctions. In essence, and this shouldn't be seen as comprehensive, but I pulled some of the UN sanctions language and had in some cases trim it down to just make this somewhat uh, doable. But if we go back to just the initial UN sanctions resolution, 1718, um, you know, basically it requires that states prevent the direct and indirect supply, sale, or transfer to the EPRK of certain weapons. Uh, so it's very explicit. This isn't, you know, something to where you can kind of do it on the side. You know, you can't directly or indirectly do this. Um, two, uh, it prohibits, and these are words specific, battle tanks, armored vehicles, large caliber artillery systems, combat aircraft, attack helicopters, warships, missiles, and other equipment from being transferred to North Korea. It also requires the DPRK to cease the export of all the items covered in those subparagraphs and for all member states to prohibit such uh, transfer. So this goes both ways. You can't send certain items to North Korea under 1718, and you can't import them from North Korea. So here's the first point where we're talking about, you know, sanctions violations in terms of weapon sales. So... You know, it doesn't explicitly say every type of weapon, uh, and it says artillery systems. It doesn't say artillery. So you could say there's some leeway there. This changes, though, in uh, sanctions resolution uh, 1874. 2009, right? Uh, I think that's right. Sorry, I didn't put the years in on these. Um, decides that the measures in paragraph 8B, which is from 1718, um, shall also apply to all arms and related materials, as well as financial transactions, technical training, advice, services, assistance to the provision of manufacture, maintenance, or use of such arms and material. Um, it goes on to say the exception is small arms. Uh, but basically, this would mean that you cannot transfer, you cannot help provide you know, information and other things to North Korea that would help them develop other types of weapon systems. 
So this is where when we talk about what North Korea could send, or Russia could send to North Korea, where Russia would be violating sanctions specifically. Also by importing you know, artillery, uh, not small arms, but artillery from Russia. Um, then, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, in the new Russian provinces uh, that uh, Russia annexed towards the end of the war, that North Korea might send individuals to take and do construction work there. So let's set aside North Korea's may already be in Russia already. Mm-hmm. This would be a violation of uh, 2375, Besides that all member states shall not provide work authorizations for GPRA nationals in the jurisdiction. I guess you could argue if Russia wanted to be coy that we're not going to provide a work authorization. We're just going to let them in under some type of visa or something. But it, basically they're violating then at least the spirit, if not the actual letter of the sanctions uh, resolutions. So there are other things here. You know, we've talked about um, Rajan and the idea of, you know, working together everything joint ventures by other resolutions are prohibited um you know to be honest because so many types of financial transactions are prohibited just doing business with russia or sorry with north korea outside of barter is essentially prohibited so i mean there are a lot of constraints and ways in which both countries would be violating sanctions by taking and deepening uh one the transfer of arms or arms technology but two potentially other things as well be these types of cooperation projects that are more about uh, using North Korean labor. Uh, so I wanted, because, you know, we often hear this put out, you know, it'd be a violation of sanctions, but I think it's important that we kind of start laying out what those violations are or would be. And, you know, like I said, this isn't comprehensive. I've raised a few other things that are on this slide, uh, but I wanted to kind of go sort of specifically into kind of like what we are talking about in terms of where that situation would be. Um, and I think, you know, with sort of that on the table, you know, Rachel, I do want to turn to you um, and ask sort of one, if you have any thoughts on sanctions, but two, um, you know, if Russia, and I think, you know, Putin has said that there are limits to cooperation. Um, and we actually, we went back and we looked at um, some of his statements prior to the beginning of the war. And it was actually interesting because he says, basically, no one wants a war. You know, we need to stop, you know, like these potential like deaths and everything and all. Um, so he did sort of foreshadow what was coming. He didn't explicitly say it wasn't going to happen. Um, in the case of sanctions, you know, on the one hand, you could argue he's been a little bit more explicit that there are limitations. But that being said, I think we can also see, unless we believe all the intelligence on weapons transfers is incorrect, that there are already sanctions violations, and clearly there are some limitations that he is willing to move beyond. So what I guess are your thoughts on sanctions and what this might mean for the North Korean economy if they're able to, you know, either through direct transfers of, you know, items through barter, such as grain or financial resources, though, I've read reporting that North Korea does not want Russian rubles uh, in any transactions because they don't see it as a viable currency. Um, What this might mean for the North Korean economy as well. Well, um, thanks for that, Troy. I think in terms of sanctions, uh, Lavrov's uh, recent answer uh, when um, when someone, when um, he was criticized and he and his government for um, basically uh, turning a blind eye to sanctions um, was that, yes, Russia did approve sanctions against North Korea um, in the past, but those were different times. And we find ourselves in a different time now. Um, and I think that tells you everything. Um, the fact that uh, Shoigu went to um, Pyongyang for a military parade. Um, in 
late July, I think, was um, gives you a full picture of where the Russians stand with regard to sanctions. And I, I think the message is pretty clear that, um, you know, sanctions and the Russians have and, and the Chinese as well have consistently said since North Korea's uh, resumed testing of ICBMs. In, in March 2022 was that, well, you know, North Korea's military actions are really because of the U.S. and um, other countries um, raising tensions in the region. So North Korea is um, basically supporting um, Russia's actions. Uh, in terms of implications for um, the North Korean economy, I think that grain oil infusions may help to mitigate shortages on a superficial level, um, you know, maybe help things going. But I don't think that such help from Russia will impact the North Korean economy fundamentally. Um, and plus, I don't think that Russia has ever had much to give North Korea economically and financially, um, not in any way that would, again, fundamentally help to develop or improve the economy. Um, the economic support always came from the Chinese, right? I would say that if Russia's help on the military front ends up somehow further revitalizing the North Korean defense industry, some in North Korea, and uh, this is unfortunately the prevailing narrative in North Korean state media these days, some in North Korea will argue that revitalizing the defense industry is the best way to improve hmm. the civilian economy because all economic sectors are connected. Right, so. Anton, I want to get your thoughts on this as well. All right. Uh, yeah, uh, I agree with uh, Rachel's point of view, and it's, and it's very interesting. Um, and I think it's it's pretty correct. But also, I wanted to add that in Putin, if we sort of look at his past background, right, he uh, was trained as a lawyer under this communist regime, but he was also pretty much familiar with the Western style of uh, uh law and practices right so um it is very entirely possible that um he will pull out some creative as they call it in russian media solutions or approaches to sanctions while openly claiming that russia is a responsible state who like up follows all the uh, restrictions and he actually even uh, sort of hinted at it uh, during the summit after it finished uh, he did say that pretty much all the old the whole specter of um, areas of cooperation was on the table and even including military it has its own prospects that's that's quote-unquote and um, uh, plus, we heard recently Lavrov saying that, uh, again, it's pretty much the same quote as just Rachel said, but he also said that Russia is not going to support any more um, sanctions or resolutions. So the times have changed and Russia is going to keep blocking as it already did right, pretty recently. Uh, so um, to summarize, yeah, indeed, right, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Putin will be trying to find all possible loopholes to avoid it while keeping the facade of actually falling sanctions and while at the same time we will see uh certain maybe underwater cooperation going on uh speaking of the north korean economy i absolutely agree with rachel indeed it's just numbers right uh, china is a way bigger larger uh, economic partner of north korea though at the same time it actually raises inter an interesting concern here because uh 
during the pandemic, pretty much China was like the only, the sole trade partner that North Korea has been relying on. And it kind of intensified its dependence on China as well, uh, in terms of uh, goods and service, like goods and sub supplies of like oil and so on, fuel. And uh, it is not really entirely welcomed in Pyongyang because for many years, for decades now, uh, the re regime has been trying to sort of avoid the growing dependence on Beijing. So it could be another point of concern. But indeed, uh, um, Russia in this game would play very minor role, even if we look at now at the size of grain shipments that Russia sends to North Korea, they're minuscule compared to what China sends. So, yeah. It's one other interesting thing I think about China. You know, I've only seen through the August data, but if you look at trade between uh, China and North Korea. North Korea's exports to China are at the highest level they had been through August um, since UN sanctions were fully implemented. So, um, you know, I think we're starting to see a lot of, you know, significant shifts. And, you know, with that in mind, like, Clint, if these really are different times, what are the implications for U.S. policy? Uh, can I just quickly, I just want to ask a follow-up <laughs> question to Rachel about the, the, you know, the military economy, the sort of the primary economy in North Korea. Um, you, know, you obviously do a, a lot of work tracing the internal economic debates, right, w within North Korea. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, one, one sort of school of thought that, that, uh, both, you know, sort of getting the, the, the military economy going, if they're starting to produce maybe artillery shells in larger numbers over time for Russia, um, could have spillover effects for the, the, the secondary economy, right? The, the people's economy. Um, uh, and uh, theoretically, I could see, you might be able to make that argument, especially if, if, if these orders are significant and sustained over time, right? That is going to garner resources that eventually in some way would spill over. Um, the other pieces, the other argument is that, of course, this would just create greater distortions to an already profoundly inefficient economy. Um, what is your read on, on that? Right? I guess part of it's like we don't know because we have to see what sort of production was occurring. So that's an unfair question. But maybe just burrowing down a little bit more into that, that sort of debate. No, um, Clint, you're absolutely right. Uh, whatever North Korea, so you have every country has a limited amount of resources, right? That it can invest invest in anything. And the more you invest in defense, um, common sense would dictate that that much less than goes toward, um, toward investing in the civilian economy. And it's the same with North Korea. Um, but the narrative that we have seen for a while now um, in North Korean media is this real push um, for justifying why um, you know, priority should be given to the defense industry. Um, I think especially this year, um, we've we've seen a stronger push in that direction. I thought it very interesting and, and telling, I would say, um, when Kim Jong-un went to, um, and this was a state media readout of a series um, of the multiple visits um, that Kim Jong-un made um, to the various munitions factories in early August. In one of the munitions factories, he uh, mentioned def defense economic work. And I don't think that was a mistake. It was defense economic work. And, um, you know, that, that emanates from defense economy. 
And I think that sort of encapsulates where they are going with the economy, you know, where their priorities lie. Um, you know, it came during, again, uh, one of his visits to munitions um, factories where the where he said that the munitions um, industry should take the lead. Um, and, you know, that that logic is definitely um, the prevailing logic in, in the North Korean um, in, in North Korea. And, and I do think that it and this goes in line with some of the language that we're seeing in state media about um, belt tightening. Um, you know, that was mentioned, sort of they slipped that in there in, in a very high profile political essay in the party daily in, in March, um, when they were, uh, basically increasing or, um, raising, um, tensions and, um, really increasing rhetoric, um, anti-US and anti-South Korea rhetoric. Um, you know, today's generation, um, does not mind, um, having to tighten their, its its belt um, for the safety and security of future generations. So that really is where the country is at the moment. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to say, um, because we're getting close to time, I do want to get like at least two other issues on the table for us to briefly discuss, but then turn it over to uh, try and get one or two audience questions in, both either here or online. If you're online watching, please put the question in the YouTube chat function. Um, but so before we turn to the audience, um, so, Clint, I want to get your thoughts just real quick on the implications for U.S. policy. And then uh, Rachel and Anton, you know, we've both been kind of dancing around the China issue here. You know, how does the Putin summit affect North Korea's relations with China? And what is China's view potentially of this deepening cooperation between Russia and uh, North Korea? So we'll go to Clint first, uh, then Anton and then Rachel. Yeah. So there's a lot there. I'll try to make this really concise. So. We've seen the U.S. messaging, um, honestly, is is not that different from what we've heard over the last two decades. Uh, and I, I was going to say, where has that gotten us? Not as if to imply U.S. policy is is the, the cause of where we've gotten, but it is one of the variables. Um, so, you know, I... <laughs> One question, especially based on our, our discussion about sanctions, what, what more they can do sanctions-wise? Of course, one potential angle, and we've seen this already, is China. And you know, obviously, over the Trump years, there was direct engagement with North Korea. Um, it, it, sort of the voices of China's got to do something about it were, were, were muted uh, for a period. We've seen a return to that narrative now that China needs to come in and help do something about this. Um, I find it very hard to believe. I think there are reasons for Beijing to try to put limits on this, constrain how far it could go for their own strategic interests. But I very, I find it very hard to believe that that Beijing is going to do anything that would serve U.S. interests in this regard. And any U.S. pressure, like actual sanctions on on Chinese firms or, or the government for uh, that targets some of their cooperation or they looking the other way with North Korea, is only going to elicit the very opposite reaction. So uh, U.S.-North Korea policy, and especially in this broader context, is at a profoundly difficult crossroads. And I see no appetite in Washington uh, to uh, imagine anything different other than what we've been doing, which I don't think is going to improve the situation. Um, that's a critique. If you're asking me for a positive answer of what to do about it, unfortunately, I don't have one. So uh, you know, I, I make we that We just need more creativity. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Uh, so, Anton. 
Well, speaking of China, uh, it is very interesting to see its position and its reaction to to the events. And basically, what I am observing is a tacit approval of this Russia and North Korea cooperation, but without rushing into joining this uh, like trilateral triangular alliance, or whatever you call it. Um, even judging by the level of recent Chinese delegations that visited Pyongyang, we we clearly can see they are no match to, for example level of Shoigu um, and clearly they are trying to send people who are civilian official uh, officials right who have not really much to do with military technology so I think uh, China is sitting it out uh, quietly observing what's going on but we we cannot discard, kind of discard this scenario that there could be another uh, in the future uh, trilateral sort of cooperation between the three countries and posing direct competition to the trilateral um, grouping of South Korea, U.S. and uh, Japan. Rachel. Um, I agree with um, Anton's assessment of China's uh, reaction to DPRK, um, strengthening of DPRK-Russia ties. Um, If anything, I think Beijing wants to keep DPRK-Russia ties at bay. Um, I think for me, it's interesting uh, what we're seeing with North Korea and its treatment of China um, after China sent a lower level delegation than had been anticipated um, to the War Victory Day celebrations at, at the end of July. After that, um, you will see that there has been a slight cooling in North Korean messaging toward um, China. So I think this is something that we want to keep tracking in the future to see where that goes. Thank you. I have a quick comment about the China's issue. The China is cautiously maintaining some distance from the North Korea and Russia. And uh, I think that's the international community and uh, rock US, Japan, trilateral cooperation and will have to should prevent China from making hasty moves. So as we know that the United States have communicated its message to Beijing uh, the, the, through the various channels and and China seems to take up it seriously until now. So of course maintaining some diplomatic the space with China is essential, still essential. So but this now, however, the actions of the Iraq, Iraq, US and Japan are crucial. Uh, we previously emphasized under the integrated deterrence was put into the in, in action. And the progress in military and diplomatic cooperation should be pursued and concretized as we the, yeah, the trilateral summit does have, have some the declaration. Mm-hmm. All right, so I want to take questions. All right, so I see many here. All right, I'm going to try to group some questions together. Uh, one, I saw this lady here in the back. She put her hand up well beforehand, so we'll start there real quick. And if you could give your name, affiliation, and just be brief sure. in uh, your question. Um, my name is Tara McKelvey, and I work for Radio Free Asia. So my question is about the weapons transfers. So Anton says that he's not even sure these are taking place. So I'm curious, I mean, is it that the West the U.S. intelligence reports are wrong about these transfers. I mean, North Korean weapons to Russia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then if they do, if they are happening, you've seen reports, I'm sure, about this train going across the border. Is that, what do you think about that? And how are these, how is it going to happen just in a practical matter? Thanks. 
All right, so Jiwon here. Jiwon uh, Park from Radio Free as well. So thank you for uh, providing insight today. And I know uh, some of you mentioned uh, about Donald Trump. Uh, uh, Putin want to buy some time to get elected uh, Donald Trump uh, to do uh, this thing. So, uh, what do you what what do you think of uh, uh, dynamic would change uh, if Donald Trump get elected uh, between Russia and North Korea? Thank you. All right, uh, Tolaraya over here. Uh, thank you, Judge Tolera, UN panel of experts. Uh, North Korea seems to be paying more and more attention to Navy these days, which is logical from a military point of view. Uh, what do you think about the possibility of uh, uh, Russia and North Korea cooperation in naval, for example, joint exercises? What would this, uh, what sanctions would this um, violate? Mm. All right, I'm going to take one more in the room and then see if there's anything in the back, uh, the gentleman here in the very back. Thank you. Um, this is Joshua Park from George Mason and South Korea. My question is about uh, U.S. perception of uh, recent tie between uh, Putin and Kim Jong-un. The title of this uh, event was the cost of, cost of war. Does it mean that without war, uh, does, US, does uh, Kim Jong-un and Putin never met or never happened those of tie? Is that the meaning of the cost of war? Thank you. Okay, and then before we start answering, were there any online questions? Okay, all right, so I have four questions here. Um, are the weapons transfer happening? And if so, how would they take place? Um, how will Trump change things? Russia-North Korea naval cooperation in terms of exercises and whether that would violate sanctions, and then uh, ties between Kim and Putin and the cost of war. Um, so why don't we take, and I'll just start with Anton and Rachel, and each of us maybe give our last sort of thoughts on any of these questions that you'd like to. So we'll start with Anton, go to Rachel, then Clint, then Hanbul. Right. Uh, speaking of uh, arms transfers, um, that would be really nice if we could see actually some concrete evidence of the transfers happening. That would be that would be a game changer, right? It would we, that would end all the speculations, and um, that's what I am looking forward to seeing. Uh, briefly on naval exercises, I personally do believe that it is the easiest, actually. A written avenue of cooperation that military cooperation that North Korea and Russia could have, and um, it, it is very sort of it's it's uh, very easy to stage a very simple military drill, considering that North Korea is putting a lot of effort to modernizing its navy and obtaining these new corvettes and so on. So that could be a real possibility to start this sort of cooperation. Rachel. Um, I think we're running short on time. So if maybe we have a couple minute, minute, minutes later, I'll um, yeah, maybe say We're going to go ahead and go yeah, a couple minutes right, over. So, so yeah, if okay. you want to go ahead, yeah. No, um, I, I don't um, I, I don't really have anything um, to add or um, in, in terms of the, um, in, uh, the questions um, that have been asked, but I would like to make a short comment on um, the Kim... Um, 
Putin summit in the context of uh, North Korea's broader foreign policy. And this is something that I have been um, saying uh, since around this time last year. And I think um, we get um, caught up in details about, you know, what Kim said, what Putin said, what went on during the summit. But I think the more important thing here is why this is happening. Um, and you can take a look, you can see that from, I guess, various, various different angles. But from the vantage point of North Korea, um, I think we need to look at this from North Korea's um, shifting foreign policy. And that being that it is has shifted away from its policy of normalizing relations with the U.S., um, and I think this is, you know, from that bigger picture, this is how we should maybe view, um, you know, what Russia means for North Korea now, what China means for North Korea. No, I think that's an important point. Thank yeah. you, Rachel. Right, Clint. Uh, just really quickly on the weapons transfers, you know, reports are one thing, but you know, we saw some North Korean shells were in Ukrainian hands uh, earlier in the war, uh, not because the North Koreans gave them to the Ukrainians, but they found their way there. So. If they are being transferred, we will see them on the battlefield. The shells will show up. They'll be tracked. It's very a very closely monitored conflict. So, um, if it's happening, we will see it. You know, um, Trump. Uh, just quickly, if Trump's reelected, um, his second term will be. This is my opinion. Far worse than the first. He'll be on a retribution tour. He'll test the resilience of U.S. domestic institutions far more than he did in his first term. Uh, he will praise Putin as he's done consistently. He's consistent in some things, and in, in that he's consistent. Um, he'll potentially be willing to reach out to Kim directly again. All the gains that have been made in terms of the NCG and other things in the alliance will be uh, tossed aside or in disarray. South Korean mistrust will build, as will Japanese. Um, but to Rachel's very important point, uh, North Korea has agency too. And though I think they'd be willing to play some ball with Trump, um, I think their position has, and their foreign policy calculus, has fundamentally shifted. They focused on normalization with Washington for the better part of 30 years, as, as uh, Rachel mentioned. Uh, I think just because Trump's reelected and may seem malleable uh, to Kim, he's been he's been through this before. Um, I, I don't know if he'll be fooled twice. Um, so that may elicit uh, a reaction, an angry reaction from Trump. Um, so we could see mistrust in the alliance and erosion of relations with North Korea at the same time. Um, so that's not a rosy picture, um, but that's what I think would uh, happen. So very positive uh, right there. Clint. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, may I take the, the first question about the, the ammunition? Yeah, the, the Russia likely saw the immediate need for cooperation with North Korea um, as Russia couldn't afford to continue dragging as the Ukraine war. Um, from my own view, North Korea's ammunition weapons are unlikely to have the impact, the major impact of the Ukraine war. I, I think it, it only have the tactical meaning. The, the importance of logistics, even in the modern warfare, that's what cannot be overemphasized. But mm. the game of the war in, in Ukraine is not determined by the just the, the simply exchange artillery back and forth. So, of course, the number of shells uh, could affect on confidence of the Russian the political and mili military leadership and domestic and international support. But if it were, uh, ammunition from North Korea, I think they said nothing will change except that just the number of shots. So on the question of naval exercises and sanctions, 
I would have to go back through and double check, but everything that comes to my mind right away deals with the transfer of arms, not cooperating in terms of running a joint exercise or something. I don't want to say that's a definitive answer, but in terms of what is coming to mind right away, I think that's sort of where the lines are on that. Um, and clearly, I think if there isn't something in the sanctions, it's not likely that is going to be added anytime soon in the UN, given the current state of yeah. politics between the countries involved. I think, you know, one other thing to keep in mind in terms of arms transfers uh, from North Korea is there is some evidence I saw, or at least speculations may be better to say, because, you know, this is hard to track, but that they may be transferring some things from Syria to Russia via that route, um, because they have the ability to take and produce some things in Syria. So Middle East connections could be part of this as well. Mm. Um you know, how Trump changes things. I think there's something else to keep in mind. I mean, setting aside, and I don't disagree with Clint, I think there are lots of challenges that Clint articulated quite well. I highlighted the bad things, yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm not necessarily going to highlight, well, maybe this is the good thing. So a lot of this depends where the war is. You know, I talked about earlier that, you know, for Putin, this is about buying time, getting to a Trump presidency to see if the U.S. could withdraw support. The challenge is, is in that time, there is a race between Russia and Ukraine. And if Ukraine were to make significant gains, mm. it might become politically hard for Trump to actually do that That's because true. then he would be seen as the person who tossed away Ukraine, sided with the loser in the war, and that would be bad for him. And you know Trump doesn't like losers. And so <laughs> I think you know at the end of the day, this is going to – if Trump wins – the battlefield will determine sort of what Trump does. If Ukraine is on the verge of victory, I think it's going to be hard for Trump to pull that support. He may want to come in and try to be the peace negotiator who settles it and everything to try and get popular. Um, but I think, you know, Putin's calculation is to buy time to Trump, but that may not work out if Ukraine is successful in the interim. Uh, so I think, you know, that is part of, maybe that is the silver lining in this calculation. Um, but, you know, we've gone a bit over, um, I want to thank everyone, uh, Rachel, Anton, especially Anton for staying up late to do this and everything. Yeah. Uh, Han Buell, Clint, this has been a really great discussion. We could talk about this in a lot more detail, a lot longer, um, but I just want to thank you all. Just Clint. one quick thing. Uh, if you haven't had enough of Rachel, she will be back here at KEI <laughs> next Wednesday in person to talk about uh, North Korea's economy and its view of, of the concept of, of economic security. So a very interesting discussion. Uh, so please stay tuned for that. Thank you all again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more Korea content, keep an eye on our podcast feed.